Section 17 of Mornings at Bow Street by John White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Rape of the Wig One Bob Jenkinson, the son of an honest law writer, a youth condemned his father's soul to cross, who picks a pocket when he should engross, was charged with taking on to himself property to which he had no right or title whatever, to wit, a barrister's wig. It appeared, by the evidence, that Bob Jenkinson, hopeful Bob, his friends call him, was prowling about Temple Bar in the dead of the night, seeking something for his pickers and stealers to do. Presently he was aware of a solitary gentleman approaching the bar from the city side, and instantly concealed himself in the shade of the archway. He determined to try his luck upon him. The gentleman so approaching was a barrister, residing in the pump court of the temple, and he came slowly and soberly on, wrapped probably in professional meditations, little thinking danger was so near him. As he passed through the archway, Bob Jenkinson popped from his hiding place, crept softly after him on tiptoe, slided his hand smoothly into his right-hand coat pocket, and drew forth a wig, like filch in the opera. He dipped for a fogle and prigged a wig. It was not a forensic wig, but a scratch wig, a la Titus, one that any closely cropped gentleman might carry in his pocket to clap on occasionally, when sitting in a theater or any other place where currents of cold air prevail. Small as it was, however, the barrister felt it depart. He put his hand to his pocket and found it wigless, and there, close by his side, stood Bob Jenkinson with the wig in his hand, wig-struck, as it were, for had the prize been a bandana, or a snuff-box, or any ordinary pocket property, Bob would have bolted with it instanter. "'What do you mean by that, you scoundrel?' said the barrister. Bob dropped the wig. The barrister took it up, and having repocketed it, he deliberately gave unlucky Bob in charge to the watch. Robert had not a word to say in his defense, and the magistrate committed him for trial. A Brummy-Jum Outrider One Mr. Peter Muddlebury, a personage with the exterior of a hackney coachman, of a downest cut, who called himself a Brummy-Jum Outrider, was brought before the magistrate one snowy morning, charged with having borrowed, with intent to steal, an eight-guinea-inlaid gold and silver snuff-box, with its contents vise, almost half an ounce, of high-dried Irish, from a Mr. William Wilkins, a very small gentleman in a very large cloak, worn military-wise, after the present highly picturesque fashion, which makes a man milliner look as magnificent as a field-marshal. It appears that Mr. William Wilkins, having been out on Friday night, spending his evening, as it is called, repaired at five o'clock in the morning, to Robotham's final finish in James Street, Covent Garden, just by way of finishing himself. He found the saloons full of good company. There were assembled the Marquis of Parramatta, Viscount Tungab, the celebrated Lord Mops, 
from Cheapside, Sir Francis Fogelshifter, Sir Sidney Cove, Mr. Gluckman, the bass singer, Mr. Fellum O'Toole, the strong-backed knight of the knot, and Mrs. Judith McCraw, Dunstable Charlotte, Peg Prothero, Kitty Parentheses, Sally Succinct, and many other fair knights of the piazza. There was singing and drinking galore. We are the lads, and hot elder wine, and coffee of the best, went merrily round Mr. Gluckman and Dunstable Charlotte, and my lord Mops, rousing the morning lark in a catch, and old Father Time, with his companion Old Winter, in the lily-white Benjamin, were held in utter scorn by everybody. Mr. William Wilkins enjoyed the fun vastly, in token whereof he handed round his high-dried Irish to the ladies and gentlemen liberally, and then sat himself down to half a pint of smoking hot elder wine among a select company of ladies in one of the side saloons. Presently came the Brummy-Jum outrider to him, with a low bow, and a Mr. Gluckman will be obliged to you, sir, for another pinch of your high-dried. With infinite pleasure, replied Mr. William Wilkins, handing over his eight-guinea snuff-box to the Brummy-Jum outrider. Mr. William Wilkins then finished his smoking on elder, and repaired to the general company again, not doubting but his snuff-box was safe with Mr. Gluckman. But to his utter astonishment, neither Mr. Gluckman, nor my Lord Mops, nor the Marquis, nor the Viscount, nor any of the ladies, knew anything about it. Mr. Gluckman declared he had never sent for it. Nobody knew the Brummy-Jum outrider, nor could he be found. Mr. William Wilkins said it was uncommon and proper, and everybody ought to be searched. My Lord Mops said the high dear of such a thing was cursed low. The ladies voted Mr. William Wilkins a bore, and Mr. William Wilkins walked away, cleaned out and completely finished. He wandered to this office and communicated his woes to the patrol in waiting, and in two or three hours thereafter they succeeded in apprehending the Brummy-Jum outrider, but no snuff-box could they find upon him. The Brummy-Jum outrider, in his defense before the magistrate, persisted in saying that Mr. Gluckman asked him to borrow the box, and having borrowed it, he delivered it to Mr. Gluckman, and what became of it afterwards he knew not. The magistrate said he had little doubt, but he obtained possession of it with a felonious intent, and committed him for further examination, in order that Mr. Gluckman might come forward to explain or deny the part it was alleged he had taken in the transaction. But eventually the matter was arranged among themselves, without any impeachment of Mr. Gluckman's character, and the Brummy-Jum outrider was discharged. Pat Crawley's Mule Mr. Fellum O'Callaghan appeared before the magistrate to show cause why he should not be charged with having stolen Mr. Pat Crawley's mule. Mr. Pat Crawley, according to his own account, was a Scotchman, born of Irish parents in the salt market of Glasgow. They, dying, left him a peddler's pack and a brown donkey, and, ever since, he has followed the profession of Autolycus, a frequenter of fairs, wakes, and wastlings, 
and a snapper-up of unconsidered trifles. Latterly, he has travelled in this manner from the salt-market in Glasgow, quite down to Penzance in Cornwall, gather gear as he went, and increasing his worldly goods at every village by the way. At Penzance he sold his donkey and bought a mule, and travelling on towards London, he arrived at the house of Mr. Fellam O'Callaghan, in Buckridge Street, St. Giles. Now Mr. Fellam O'Callaghan, being his seventh cousin by the mother's side, he thought he and his mule would be perfectly safe under his roof, and the more especially as Mr. Fellam O'Callaghan expressed great joy at the sight of him. So Mr. Pat Crawley put his mule in Mr. Fellam O'Callaghan's little stable, at the back of his place, rubbed it down, supped it up, and then went out to enjoy himself with a mutchkin of whiskey at the change-house for nent the corner at the change-house he found the ingle bleezing finely and the whisky o the best and the guide-wife uncosancy and so many of his mother's cousins came in to see him that munchkin followed after munchkin till they reamed in his noddle a bit and at the last of it he gained to his bed and Mr. Fellam O'Callaghan's with a black eye and an empty purse, having lost seven good gowden sovereigns. He didn't a ken how. In the morning he got up at break of day, thinking to saddle his mule and gang his ways fra the town. But the mule was gone, and no one kenned where. The magistrate condoled with him on his loss and recommended him to be more careful of his property in future, and then asked Mr. Fellam O'Callaghan what had become of the mule. "'Your honour's asking me about the mule,' replied Mr. Fellam O'Callaghan, "'and I knows nothing about her at all. Barn Pat Crawley put her in the stable himself, along with the donkeys.' "'The donkeys? What do you mean by donkeys?' asked his worship. Them are little bits of things, little bits of mules, donkeys, your honour, as carries the cabbages and pirators about. And I told him, says I, Pat Crawley, says I, deal a little bit of a lock there is to it. That's the door, your honour. And Pat, says I, buy your own lock, says I, or he'll be off, maybe. And he wouldn't, your honour. And so she was was what off your honour sure enough that's the mule your honour bad luck to her one of the patrol said he had been called in by mr pat crawley upon the discovery of his loss and he had examined mr o'callaghan's premises in consequence and as there was no other way from the stable but through mr o'callaghan's connivance mr o'callaghan declared he knew nothing whatever of it and his worship might have a six months character of him any day in the week his worship however told mr o'callaghan that he must either find the mule or remain in custody and he left the office under the surveillance of the officer and mr pat crawley himself they adjourned to a neighbouring public-house whence mr o'callaghan dispatched a messenger of his own to st giles and in two hours after the mule was brought down to the office and safely re-delivered to mr pat crawley
and thereupon Mr. Phelim O'Callaghan was discharged, upon which he exclaimed, Bad luck to the mule for getting out of that, and long life to your honor for letting me out of this. THE TEMPLAR AND THE COOK This was a matter of assault, battery, riot, and false imprisonment. Between Thesodius Todd, Esquire, and Mr. John Cutmore, Mr. Theodosius Todd is a gentleman. It is said, of considerable property, rather diminutive in stature, and very fond of cold-boiled ham. Mr. John Cutmore is a vendor of cold-boiled ham, and many other good things, at a large house near Temple Bar, a house well known to many a kitchenless bachelor. Mr. Theodosius, Todd having complained to the magistrate that he had been violently assaulted by Mr. John Cutmore, the magistrate granted his warrant to being Mr. Cutmore before him. When Mr. Cutmore pleaded justifiable colouring, and thereupon issue was joined, it appeared by the evidence for the prosecution on that certain day named Mr. Todd sent his servant-boy from his chambers in the temple to the shop of Mr. Cutmore for a quarter of a pound of cold-boiled ham, fully intending to take the said ham for a lunch in the form of a sandwich between slices of bread or bread and butter, as the case might be. He, moreover, instructed his servant-boy to bring ham of the very best quality, and he made no stipulation whatever with regard to price. In due time the boy returned with a quarter of a pound of ham, but it was by no means of such quality or complexion as Mr. Todd had anticipated, and he therefore sent it back again with a request, either that it should be exchanged for some of a better quality, or the money returned forthwith. In answer to this very reasonable request, Mr. Cutmore sent word that Mr. Todd did not know good ham when he saw it, and he should neither exchange it nor return the money. Mr. Todd sent the boy a second time, and a second time Mr. Cutmore returned the same contumacious answer. By this time the ham began to exude copiously through the smoky, fly-spotted bit of paper in which it was wrapped, and Mr. Todd felt very much annoyed at the predicament in which he found himself, as any man naturally would do under the circumstances. There was lunch-time sliding rapidly away, unsatisfied, and there was the ham melting away as rapidly, and there was the boy with his time wasted, and the yellow unctuous juices of the ham dripping from between his fingers, and there was money uselessly expended, and there was the unprovoked contumely of the ham-monger to be endured, forming altogether such a concatenation of provocatives as is rarely to be met with and in this light Mr. Todd viewed the matter. So he wrapped up the greasy cause of all these miseries in a clean half-sheet of foolscap, and slipping it carefully into the breast-pocket of his shirt-out, he set out for the ham-shop, determined to seek redress by stratagem, since it was not to be had otherwise, and at the same time procure something fit for a lunch, without incurring further expense. With his determination, 
he went into the shop, where, it seems, he was quite unknown, and pointing to a beautiful and nicely corned buttock of beef, which stood on the counter, he quietly desired Mr. Cutmore to cut him a quarter of a pound of it, in nice thin slices for a sandwich. Mr. Cutmore did as he was desired. He cut the beef in delicate slices, fit for the mouth of a princess, and wrapping them up in a clean piece of paper. He laid them down before Mr. Todd, rubbed his hands, and waited smilingly for the money. "'Thank you, sir,' said the wily Mr. Todd, coolly thrusting the packet of cold beef into his breast pocket, and at the same time throwing the sweating packet of ham upon the counter. "'Thank you, sir, and there is your nasty dab of ham in exchange for it.' And having so said, he stalked out of the shop, buttoning up his coat to keep his beef safe, and exulting in the success of the stratagem. Mr. Cutmore stood aghast for a moment, and then, all hot as his own mustard, he sprung over the counter, rushed into the street, with the powder flying from his hair at every step, and his snow-white apron streaming in the wind, caught Mr. Todd just as he was popping through Temple Bar, seized him by the collar, and, without uttering a word, began dragging him back towards his shop, and at every step giving him a shake just as a thoroughbred terrier shakes a half-expiring rat when it feebly resists his violence. The scuffle soon created a crowd, and some took one side, some the other, but the cook was too much for the Templar. He pulled him by main force into his shop, and kept him shut up in his larder till he paid the uttermost farthing. This was the case for the prosecution. Mr. Cutmore, in his defense, began by expatiating on the superior excellence of his ham in general, and on the slices sent to the complainant in particular. He had the honor, he said, of serving many gentlemen in the temple exclusively with ham, and it was a well-known fact that there were no better judges in existence. Mr. Todd's servant bought him word that the ham was mighty, mighty, and he returned him for answer that he did not know what he meant by the word. The fact was that the ham was as good as ever was cut, and Mr. Todd knew nothing about the article. He was ready to admit that Mr. Todd's statement was generally correct, but he conceived he was justified in treating him as he had done, inasmuch as he had carried off his beef without paying for it. And as to the ham pretended to be given in exchange for it, whether the said ham was good or bad, there was nothing to prove to him that it was bought at a shop. The magistrate thought Mr. Todd's rue de beef a very derogatory proceeding for a Templar, but as Mr. Cutmore had perhaps used more violence than was absolutely necessary in seeking redress, he recommended then to retire and compromise their differences without further expense and exposure. Mr. Todd expressed his readiness to treat, but the angry cook refused his overtures with indignation, and the matter ended in his being bound in his own recognizance for his appearance at the sessions to answer any complaint that might be preferred against him. End of section seventeen.